You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The earliest memory, blackness, and in this blackness the sound of church bells clanging wildly. It is of her coming. Clamoring down from the bed I share with my nyanya, a treacherous descent in the dark, I go to the window. The dusky summer sky is shimmering, orange, violet, red. The northern lights pulse and flare, and in the street a man falls to his knees and crosses himself. People are shouting, their words a blur, but infused with unmistakable urgency. A riderless white horse careens into view. It rears up and then races on, its tail and mane flying like ragged sails behind it. Frightened, I return to the bed and press my body against Olga's. The next image is that of our bedroom door bursting open and through it an enormous wolf entering. The wolf says, quite calmly, that its house is afire. For years, I believed this to be an uncommonly vivid dream. It was only much later, upon hearing my nurse talking about events long past— as old ones are wont to do, as I am doing even now, that I recognized in her story certain unmistakable features of my dream. There was a terrible fire late in the summer of 1736, the sixth year of Her Imperial Majesty Anna Ionovna's reign and the fourth year of my life. The fire was said to have begun in a stable near what is now Sadovaya Street, but it spread like a storm through the city. People fled their homes with only those few things they could carry, icons and tableware, a handful of jewelry, whatever they had snatched up in their alarm. One man was seen dragging his bed through the street. An old woman was found in her nightclothes, clutching a squawking goose to her breast. There was no fire brigade then, nor means to draw water from the canals, and in the end over 2,000 homes were lost. What I mistook for the northern lights was the entire Admiralty District being consumed by flames. What I took for a wolf was Exania. Deborah Dean is the author of the novel The Madonnas of Leningrad and the short story collection Confessions of a Falling Woman. Her new novel is The Mirrored World. Thank you for joining me, Deborah. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Deborah, this is such a wonderful novel of a time that in many ways reminds me of ours because a a lot of what we see in this novel is a world where there's a huge gap between the way the richest of the rich live and the poorest of the poor live. And the poorest of the poor are forced to fill the emptiness in their lives with a a kind of spirituality that uh, suffuses this book. It's true. I think... In some ways, 18th century Russia just couldn't be more foreign. There's an element that seems as as far away as a fairy tale. But as I was studying the period and writing, I began to find striking similarities to what seems to me very contemporary things. That, that I live in Miami, and... There's a, a sort of flaunting excess of wealth that reminded me somewhat of, of the nobility of Russia. There's that 1% uh, versus the 99, and, and that was very much a, a, the reality of Russia then, and I think it's uh, very much our reality now. 
you create such a, a vivid world for us, as you say. And I think you do a great job. That's exactly was my take on it, too. That's a very fairy tale kind of world. And this is done through prose, through your kind of uh, a very poetic and evocative prose. But you do a great job of building this world with which most of us are totally unfamiliar. It's the world of um, Empress Elizabeth through Catherine the Great and that kind of transitional time in between. So I'd like you to talk about reading and infusing the kind of historical backdrop and then how that sifted out through the prose. Well, I did a lot of research. It wasn't a period I was familiar with. Uh, Writers are very often told in creative writing classes to write what they know. And I've tried to do that, but honestly, I'm just not that interested in what I already know. I, I am much more interested in writing about what I don't know. But that means you have to go and find out. And for me, I teach now, but if I could afford it, I would still be a student. So this is sort of my excuse to be a student. I get to explore times. I get to time travel. And so I was. I just read when I was doing the research for this. I did a lot of reading on the period. And it was an interesting time to research because anything you want to know about court life and the nobility, it's pretty easy to find. But as soon as you step one foot outside of the nobility, there's nothing. Uh, Russia was largely preliterate up until uh, the 19th century. And so there's not the kinds of information about the rest of the country outside of, of the nobility, the kinds of things that you need to know as a novelist, what people ate, what they thought, those kinds of things that might be revealed in letters or journals. There aren't any letters or journals. So it was an interesting, puzzling time to research. Where did you find information on the way you create the the life of these characters, you know, in the farms and living in the cities and the way they own the houses and that some of that kind of bequeathing the ownership onto one another. That's a really interesting aspect of this book. It's a it's a fascinating economy that that uh, runs through all this. It's radio, so you can't see. It's a very thin, skinny book, but there's it's I, I call it the world's shortest Russian novel because even though it's thin, there's there's a lot that got packed in there. With the research, the Internet is a wonderful thing. And one of the ways that I was able to use it with this book was to find out who are the experts and find out the, you know, the person that knew everything about traveling in Russia in the 18th century. And that person might be a professor living in, uh, well, see, I, one of them was in Switzerland that I spoke with, and another person was in England. But Geneva, you send an email. We all professors, we all have email addresses. So I just would go to the people that I thought might know the answer. I was also really lucky that I have a friend, Kira Petrovskaya Wayne, who is 94 years old and a vibrant woman. And she was from one of the 12 original noble families in Russia. And so she knows an awful lot about that period. And when I got stuck, when I didn't know something, and I couldn't find the answer to it. Very often I, I would contact Kira and ask her, and she would tell me. So she actually vetted this book to make sure that I wasn't stumbling too badly anywhere. One of the things I, I love about this book is the way that the supernatural, there's a feel of the supernatural and the surreal and the kind of magical that infuses the prose, and it, it comes at the, the prose level and also at the plot level. And I'm wondering how much of this you 
found out how much of it you created as you wrote and how much of it just kind of came up out of the language? I think Russia is, it's a very spiritual place. And when I visited there, it struck me very, very deeply and in a way that I can't entirely explain. I, I went to the services and I'm not Russian Orthodox, but I remember standing in the cathedral during one of the services and just weeping and and a part of my brain thinking this is ridiculous you know <laughs> i was raised presbyterian what you know I, this is but it, there's there's something about it that is so deeply deeply invested in spirituality and and you see it on the streets walking down the streets and and i, I so i think that's just part of being russian and I don't know exactly. I didn't plan this book out. I'm not very good at planning books out. Uh, if you live in your imagination in a place long enough, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but the words rise up and they come to you, and the book comes comes to you. I, I don't I don't plan it out. I will sound smarter about it down the road after I've talked to readers, and they'll tell me what it's really about. But the book just came out fairly recently, so. Well, one of the things I think that is interesting, and you referred to this too, is that this is a, it's kind of a thin book, but it's packed. It's very and it doesn't feel dense, but it has so much atmosphere and so much. Uh, You've really done a great job of giving us just the right details. Talk about selecting those details to create the characters and create the plot and the world that you create. My first life, before I was a writer, I was an actress. And I trained in the, the method. And part of that is keeping biographies. And when I was doing a character, I used to write a biography for the character that I was acting. And it wasn't as though I was any of that was going to come out in lines on the stage, because of course, you say the playwright's lines. But what I do as a writer is very similar to what I did as an actor. It really is just uh, making things up and comp and going into the life of a person and into the place and just spending a lot of time imagining the details because it's all it's all in the details it's not in it's all the trees not the forest do we just see the tip of the iceberg of the writing here is there a lot are there a lot of written biographies of these characters um there is some there's some biography of of the different characters and there's earlier drafts this one had this the first draft of this was just so ugly and awful <laughs> It really was. And and fortunately, my husband is my in-house editor, and he's a brave man. He he tells me the truth, even when I don't want to hear it. And so, yeah, there's earlier drafts of this that, that no one will ever see. Well, this is quite beautiful. We meet um, Dasha, who's, who's our, our storyteller. And this book is called The Mirrored World. And of course, the novel is itself a, a mirror of the world. And you play with a lot of very interesting imagery. Talk about creating Dasha, to, who's going to help uh, bring us into the life of an of a actual saint. And, and uh, did you, when you were doing the research on this, on this period, did you pull uh, Saint uh, Exania out of the, out of the, the history? She is, she is a historical figure, mm -hmm. and 
Uh, I had never heard of her, but if you are Russian Orthodox, you would know who she was. And she is a very popular saint in, in Petersburg. Uh, she was from the 18th century. There's not any historically documented facts about her, but there's a lot of legend. And so I would read, I read all of the, the legend about her. And there's nothing in the novel that contravenes that. But it's legend. So you have to fill in a lot between that when you're going to write a novel. So I had to make a lot up. And I felt like I couldn't really get inside of Exania. I, I just, I, I couldn't become a saint. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so far from what I, what I am. But, but one of the, one of the things that, that drove me into this novel was the curiosity and the question about what kind of person becomes a saint. I wasn't raised in a, in, in a belief in, in saints, and they always sort of struck me as like superheroes, really kind of over the top and not quite real. But there was something about Exania that I couldn't dismiss it that readily. And her story, I, I don't think I'll spoil it if I say this, the, the outline of her story is that she was in the periphery of the court. Her husband was a singer in Empress Elizaveta's choir. And supposedly they were very happily married. And when she was 26, he died suddenly. And she went mad with grief. And that begins her journey towards sainthood. But there was something about that, that line, that phrase, that she went mad with grief. And I, and I kept being reminded of Joan Didion's wonderful book, uh, The Year of Magical Thinking, when she talked about her own experience of losing her husband and that kind of crazy mind that happened after that. And so I started imagining what, what would that really be like? And so going from the sort of abstract fairy tale nature of the hagiography of her and of the period and trying to make it personal because you have to make it real for yourself. I love the way that she's introduced in this kind of uh, scene of confabulation because she's the inverse of what we always hear. She's a sheep in wolves' clothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I had Dasha. I, I, you asked a question and I didn't answer it. Um, I had Dasha as the narrator bec because they, they form kind of a contrast. Xenia is impulsive and she doesn't behave according to society's dictates, and she follows her own star and is kind of wild. And I chose, I made up a character, Dasha, to narrate who is her cousin and is, loves and worships Exania, but also doesn't completely understand what she's doing. Because the other question that, that came to me is not only w what kind of person becomes a saint, but what if someone that you loved and cared about actually started making these choices that are um, against their own self-interests? Wouldn't, wouldn't you try to stop it? Uh, how hard would it be to accept somebody that you actually knew doing things that, you know, other people might readily say, oh, this person is a saint. But I don't know. Maybe it's like there's no prophet in, you know, so no one is a prophet in his own land. Maybe no, no one is a saint either. So I, Dasha was my entree to this character. I, you know, I really like that analogy you made that 
Saint, you had said earlier that saints are like superheroes. And thinking about it, this is really very. This book is very much like what we often see are, you know, the uh, origin stories of of superheroes. And it's a very similar thing in that it arises out of tragedy, and the reaction of of tragedy is to strive for something that's really beyond human. Well, I think I know in my own life um, that when I when I reach out for something bigger than myself is is never when I'm having a good time, never when life is easy. That's not when I grow either, and and so I do think that that attention to spirituality and that devotion happens when when we get uh, you know the blocks kicked out from under our feet. One of the the scenes in here that I thought was really striking occurs early in the book. It's a scene at the Ice Palace. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to talk about writing that scene because you create something that you couldn't possibly have ever seen. But it's it's very beautiful. And I think the the prose and the descriptions echo through the book. The the Ice Palace is was actually a real place, and the first Romanov Empress Anna Ivanovna, uh, she had this constructed. There, she had an advisor named Prince Galitsyn, and he did something that really ticked her off. And for vengeance, she stripped him of his title, and she made him a court jester. And then, to rub a little salt in the wound, she arranged a marriage between him and one of her uh, maids, a hunchbacked old woman. And she had this big citywide celebration of the wedding. And she built, had built this ice palace on the frozen river Neva. And that was the honeymoon. It was a very, very uh, wicked thing to do. But she had them spend the night, their honeymoon night, wedding night, in this palace that was made entirely of ice. It was a small palace, but nevertheless a palace. And it was built on the frozen river Neva. And they uh, were, were left out there in the middle of winter. It's actually uh, fairly well documented because obviously you do something like that, and it's one of the more famous stories about Anna Ionovna that has survived. And people talked about it and wrote about it, so there actually was a lot of detail. In 2006, they... I don't know when they had found the plans, but they had found the original plans for the Ice Palace, and they reconstructed it, and they built it not on the river, but they built it in Palace Square next to the Hermitage Museum, and it's open to the public. They do this every winter now, so if you go to Petersburg, you can actually go and see a reconstruction of the palace. So a lot of the details were provided to me by that because there were the the descriptions that I write of the palace are based on on things that the details that people said. I mean, I made some of it up, but a lot of it really is well documented. And well, it's creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. I love this scene where she walks up to the mirror and there's no there's no reflection. I thought that was again, one of these kind of details that contribute to the atmosphere of this of this book. And I think that's one of the power of this book is as we read it builds up this very intense and complicated and prickly atmosphere of grief, but it's not exactly sad. There's this, um, I think, enormous bolt of power 
running through this book. And I'm wondering if you perceive that kind of bolt of power going in or if you discovered it as you wrote about the character and created uh, Exania. When I'm writing, it's I'm not as self-aware as you might think. You, you, It does feel very much like a gift. I was talking with Isabel Allende yesterday. We had lunch together, and we were talking about that. When, when it's going well, it does, it does feel like it's coming from somewhere else it, rather than sitting down and figuring it all out. But, I mean, Russia is one of the reasons. This is my second book about Russia. I'm not Russian. There's just no logical reason for me to do this. But I do think Russia has the best stories, and, and everything about Russia is so powerful and big and outsized and dramatic. You know, how could you not want to write about this? Well, I, I love the, the feel of this story. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, the plot, too, because it's an, it's an interesting plot. And you, you do something. I like your pacing, the way it's divided into chapters. Uh, did you know the, the story arc of this book going in? It was a difficult arc because it is based on, on a real person. And our lives don't necessarily fall out in the shape of a nice narrative arc. And, and so it was a bit difficult to figure out how to structure the book. It's, it's a short, relatively short book, but it's episodic because it covers her life uh, from, from when she was young until she actually lived like 70 years. And it, the book doesn't carry all the way to the end, but it, it carries fairly far. And I structured it to spend a lot of time in her youth because what was interesting to me, again, was this question of what kind of person would make these choices? What kind of person would end up? Is this psychological or or is it something that is is thrust upon you those these kinds of choices and so i spent a lot of time in her youth setting the scene i love place so i think in in some ways the novel is as much about russia as it is about any of the characters you know uh, there's a scene early on when she's a child and an old woman sees her and the the woman says this one sees and what the what uh, Dasha later thinks isn't so much that uh, the old woman's afraid of what um, Exania sees, but of what she sees in Exania. And I think that was a really interesting uh, uh, way for you to, I guess, create the the fulcrum point for where this sainthood kind of starts. Yeah, and and with the sainthood, it's it's. A particular kind of sainthood. Uh, Exania was a holy fool, and that's not something that there is a Western equivalent of, but the closest Western equivalent would probably be the Native American shamans. And so it's complicated. They're not, the holy fools are not soft, fluffy, easy, warm saints. They're a little bit dangerous and maybe a little bit crazy. I mean, the way I think of Exania is. If she were to show up today, let's say in, in San Francisco in, in 2012, in all likelihood, she would be diagnosed with schizophrenia and put on meds. She'd be driving a shopping cart through the mission exactly, district exactly. and giving away everything she had. Exactly. And yes, she, that felt very contemporary to me. There, there is a woman that lives in my neighborhood that is very often pushing her cart around and 
my husband and I have, have nicknamed her Xenia because she talks to herself, but there's something about her that looks, she looks wise. She looks like she knows more than she's saying. You know, the 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 holy fools, I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, kind of subculture, the, the way you describe the kind of the street people of St. Petersburg and the whole picture of the way uh, Dasha and her family live and the way the families get kind of shoved together. It, we always think of maybe families always staying together and that our new concept of the way we have families now where people kind of live together and this is also newfangled, but no, not at all. This is the way the families live together in your book uh, is seems very contemporary. Well, well, Dasha is her family is is stays together. Her her Xenia and Xenia's sister and mother, they lose their father in a war. And there's a sense of from Russians then and and to this day, one's family is maybe much more extended than we might recognize our own family, and the obligations are much more extended. So second cousins are family and you're responsible for them. And so they when they're growing up, they have their extended blood relations. Exania takes it another step further, where she begins to widen the circle of who she counts as family. And I think that's part of evolving as a spiritual being, is that you just keep widening and widening the circle of, of family in, until it includes everybody, everybody that, that needs love and needs help. And she does that. And but of course, that is is grounds enough for her to be regarded as crazy. When we meet Dasha, she's interested in reading, but she's discouraged from doing so. But what we get in this book is a reader's voice, and I think that's an interesting approach to crafting the prose and crafting the narrative of and telling the story itself. I wanted to have a first-person voice, somebody that knew Exania that would be approaching this from, you know, just, just talking about her. And I had to have somebody that might have, I thought, well, how, how, who would they be talking to? And, and might, might they write this down? And women in that period, even noble women, were not literate. It was a rare choice to make. Of course, Catherine the Great was a big reader, but she was the empress. She was allowed to be different. The other women were very much discouraged from reading. And so the choice that Dasha makes where she becomes a, a reader is her one sort of small, timid rebellion and she, I, I wanted a, I wanted a smart voice to tell the story, and somebody who was a rational thinker, because this period is, of Russia is very interesting. They're right on the cusp, uh, old Russia, being preliterate and being very um, spiritual, but also superstitious, and Catherine the Great starting well before Catherine the Great, Empress Elizabeth is starting to move them toward Europe and the age of reason as it's starting to filter into Russia. And there was a real clash there 
and almost a schizophrenia in the nobility because they were being sort of forced onto the European stage and forced to act like Europeans. So they would speak Russian at home and they would speak French in the court. At home, they would dress like Russians, and when they went out, they would dress like Europeans. And so it was that this is part of that mirror thing where the mirror is, is almost a schizophrenia, doing one thing at one time, one thing at another time. You offer a stark and unsettling vision of the choices that women were faced with in this in this book, and it's maybe not so different from <laughs> again what some people would prefer the current day to be. So I'd like you to just talk about discovering that and letting that how that rolls out because Exania has a different has a different approach. Well, you know the choices for women up until very recently, were pretty limited. And even now, of course, in a lot of the world, they're, they're, far, they're very limited. And women, it was all about marrying and marrying as well as you could. And if you were in the noble class, you were in some ways privileged because you weren't scrapping around for food and starving, but there was still terrible constraints socially. And you were chattel. And so you didn't make choices. You didn't make love matches. Your family made arrangements for you to marry. And if you had a father that took an especially kindly interest in you, he might take your feelings into consideration. But that was almost regarded as a little bit strange to do that. So marriage was a contract. And you were very much trained and formed from from childhood to become a good wife and your affection for your husband was was irrelevant that was just something that you were going to learn to do to be affectionate and one of the things that i found really interesting when i was studying this period was the bonds between parent and child were much looser than we would recognize Parents and children weren't necessarily close, and it was because there was a very high rate of infant mortality. And so you didn't really necessarily want to make those attachments to babies because they died so often. Um, so you see parents and children, even in, in the Romanovs, in, in when you read about their behavior towards their parents and children, it's horrifying but it's not the way we recognize those bonds today. And it, and it really was because they were living separate lives. Children didn't even see their parents very often. Now, one of the things that history gave you was uh, that Exania had went mad with grief upon the death of her husband. So this is a little bit of a gift for you because you can use that to create this uh, as a, the center of a plot strand. And I'd like you to talk about uh, the way you create this character, Andrei Fyodorovich, who is a great character, and their relationship is it, its so wonderful. Andrei is, I mean, again, all I had to go on from the, the hagiography was that she was married to this court singer named Andrei Theodor, bleh, Theodorovich. Don't try and speak Russian in the morning if you're not Russian. Um, and that they were happily married. And 
I created this character. I thought, well, he's going to have to be somebody that is different, too, and special, too, because he's going to be with this woman who is uh, wild and, and saint-like. And so I, I, cre- I thought of two characters, two people that really fell head over heels passionately in love, which would have been not a wise choice and not something that you were supposed to do at the time. And so just by that act alone, they were both rebellious. And I, he was a singer in the court. And he, I thought of music is another thread that runs through this book. And, and the two male love interests are both musicians. And I think maybe because I'm an artist, I was an actor before I was a writer, I've spent most of my life around artistic types. And, you know, there's a lot of us, we're, we're a little crazy, a little, a little out there. And I do think you do have to have, you have to be passionate. And particularly musicians and singers. So I thought of him as just this very passionate person I also had to decide he died suddenly when he was young. And they don't say what that means in the hagiography. But most of the time when they die young in Russia in that period, it has something to do with booze. (laughs) Vodka plays a role there. And so I thought, he's a drunk. You know, he is this charming, lovely man who is passionate and, and, you know, just handsome and, again, like her, sort of over the top. And it go, he goes a little too far. He has a little too much to drink one night, and, and there's an accident. The night upon which this happens is one of the, the more, more fabulous scenes in this book and based, uh, again, on one of the wilder aspects of uh, Catherine's reign, uh, the cross-dressing balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who'd think, you know? This is, again, this is one of those themes that you think, okay, are we, you know, are we in 18th century Russia or are we in San Francisco in 2012? I don't know. Uh, Catherine the Great, that was one of her favorite things to do was she loved having these cross-dressing balls. And because she was empress, everything that she did and everything that she wanted, it was mandatory that you play along. So she had these balls and she would invite the nobility. And if you were invited, you came and you did whatever she said. So she was very particular about how everybody should dress. And she would have these themed balls and weekly balls. They weren't every week wasn't cross-dressing ball, but often enough. And so the nobles had to dress up in uh, costumes of the opposite sex. And the men apparently were particularly cranky about this after a while. Uh, they didn't really like having to deal with the hoop skirts and whatnot. But the reason she liked doing this purportedly is that she had great legs. And so any opportunity, she looked good in men's clothing. And so any t- opportunity that she had to show off her legs, she took him, took him up on it. So yeah, the scene, the, that night is a cross-dressing ball. And you have those, that scene, that sort of oddness of showing up at this palace and seeing people that are not quite as they first appear. The mirrored world mm-hmm. as it is. Yes. Now, this book also, uh, a theme running through this book, he, you mentioned music, and, and we meet a, another musician, uh, 
tell us a little bit about Gaspari and this is who he is, what he is, and uh, how you uh, created this character. Gaspari is a castrato, an Italian castrato. Uh, And this is historical where, again, part of that becoming part of Europe is they imported into the Russian court people from all around Europe. So they brought in French chefs and Italian architects, and they brought in Italian castratos uh, to, to sing, and they paid them enormous sums. So some of the finest musicians and singers in Europe were actually in residence in Russia. And so they called them at the time musicos, and they were the 18th century equivalent of, of rock stars now. Uh, very, the, very, very popular. And had these, we, we don't know what they sounded like because there are no more castratos. Uh, although there's a guy named, um, I, I think that's, I'm going to get this right, Philippe Jaruski, who sings the music of that period that was uh, written for the castratos. And he, it's, he maybe gets as close as we might get to hearing what that might have sounded like. They were very, very, very popular, and women swooned when they sang, and people followed them. They, they had groupies, but they were also freaks, and so they weren't invited into people's homes, and they were referred to as monsters and referred to with that same kind, the way that we would refer to a dog. So you wouldn't actually, on the one hand, you worship them, but on the other hand, you wouldn't actually socialize with them. And I don't know if I want to explain how he plays into the the plot exactly, but he is a, he's a major character. You describe him too, and I think this is interesting. When I read this, I had never twigged to this aspect. You describe him as temperamental, and I I never put together the two parts of that word, temper and mental. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that you know you do a great job of. He's a really a, a, a fun guy to be with. And, and also, too, the way you describe the music is, again, it, you can feel it kind of running through both the musical themes and this idea of the saintly themes, too, because there's a, a, a certain uh, ascetic, ethereal quality to the way you describe his music and the way especially Dasha experiences his music. Did you have that experience when you listened to this, uh, uh, the uh, 21st century equivalent? Um, not necessarily, but I do think that music is a way that we access the divine music and art. Uh, if, you know, if someone is not religious, they may experience the spiritual through music nonetheless. I, I think that they're very closely linked. And... Gaspari as a castrato, they were they regarded themselves as being in service to the divine, and they made this sacrifice, uh, maybe not necessarily willingly, but they're, you know, they were castrated as children, and they were castrated to serve the church, so it was church music mostly, and there was that idea of being in service to God. Uh, and creating this beautiful music. But, of course, it was a terrible sacrifice because they gave up any hope of having a normal life. 
and so like like Exania, it's it, the the book has has a lot of freaks, a lot of holy freaks in it, uh, and, and a lot of uh, visions of humanity dwarfed by its own concept of God. Uh, of churches and figures in churches, it's interesting that we would conceive of our Creator as being, you know, so much more immense to us, and then go to all, about all the trouble of this, us troublesome monkeys to build these giant edifices. Oh yeah, well, and you know, when you go, if you go to Petersburg, and you see these churches, and it's, I mean, they're gorgeous, and they ins- they were, of course, they were constructed to inspire us to to for our thoughts to go upwards and they're they're really beautiful places talk talk about you must have traveled to petersburg (laughs) well more in my imagination than in in uh in actuality i my first book the madonnas of leningrad was set in petersburg when it was called leningrad during during the war uh world war ii and i wrote the book without ever setting foot in russia which is not necessarily a strategy that I recommend, but it was I was at the time teaching part-time community college, which which is the academic equ- equivalent of migrant labor, and I couldn't afford to to travel, and I had to save all my money to write. So I wrote the book without ever going to Russia, and then after the publisher bought it, and especially after I realized that it really was going to go out in the world in rather a big way. I was so thrilled. Uh, you can't, I can't overstate my giddy, giddiness. But there was also that part of me that I was sort of terrified. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna, this book is going to go out in the world, and I'm going to be exposed as a fraud because I've never even been there. So I took some of the money that I got as an advance, and my husband and I made a trip about three weeks before I had to turn the final manuscript in, you know, just to see if I'd gotten it all right. And I had. That it was it was the most it was the wildest experience. It was like a two week deja vu, because I went to this city that I had lived in, off and on in my imagination for ten years, and I knew my way around. I which was fortunate because I don't read Russian, so I couldn't read the street signs, but I knew where everything was, and it looked very it looked exactly as I had imagined it, which wasn't isn't as freaky as it might sound. I'd looked at photographs and studied maps and over the years become very, very familiar with the place. In order to do the mirrored world, I did not go back. Uh, what the kinds of questions that would have taken me back, um, the place looks different now. I'd, I've been there. And I also have to say my husband does not like to fly. And so <laughs> it's not easy for me to just hop over there and, and, and go back. And I think there's also something to be said for staying in your imagination. You know, that was going to be my next question, because I think that the imagination is really an important part of creating a historical novel like this. It's not unlike writing The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I mean, it, it it's we're no closer to this world than we are to Lord of the Rings, really. Right. Yeah, you, you, at least in my way of thinking with historical fiction, I do feel an obligation that I get it right, the part that is historical, that I, I get that right. In part because a lot of people, even though this might not be advisable, a lot of people read fiction, historical fiction especially, as though they are reading history. It's, I think it's many ways a better way to get 
to to grok the world because even again i i think this this book contains a wealth of of you know stuff that seem that seems real but the imaginative component you going in there and reimagining all that history and creating characters real and imagined i think that that brings it to life in a way that mm-hmm. um, actual history sometimes cannot do. Well, it, it, it's almost like time traveling, mm-hmm. which I, if I could have a, a superpower, that <laughs> would be the one I would want, is just to be able to go back and live someplace else and be empathetic to other kinds of lives and other places that I won't ever have an opportunity to actually go and see. But it's a wonderful thing to be a reader or to be a writer, to be able to experience lives that are outside of our own, get to live more than one life. One of the themes of this book, something that runs through it, and I think you do a great job of this, is grief. And there's a lot of loss, and I don't want to talk about specifically what kind of loss, but we do find out how people react to to grief, to, to loss of those that are loved ones in their lives. And what you do is to not mire us in, I think, sadness, but to suffuse that kind of the power of grief, the power, the emotional power that grief draws up, and take it to a, a more spiritual realm. I am fortunate in that I haven't experienced necessarily the, the depth of grief that these some of these characters have. But we've all, you live long enough and you've had losses. And I've seen people that I love that have experienced deep losses. And there's a potential there in our lives when things crack open. And there's a potential there for good kinds of changes as well. And to get out of it, you know, it it shakes us out of our ruts and and reminds us that our lives are bigger and more precious than we sometimes remember on a day-to-day basis. And and I think, too, that the transformation that uh, Exania undergoes we see that mirrored in those around her, and the way you work that is really beautiful. And there's a kind of, uh, uh, I think, you do a great job of uh, fusing two opposites, joy and kind of sadness, and a, a certain, I think, very Russian feeling uh, of resignation. Yes. <laughs> Fate. You know, you there's the, the, it's true. The Russians, in some ways... The Russians are are so sad, and 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 they. If you go, Americans go to Russia, and we, you know we're like happy, smiling idiots and saying hi to everybody, and that's just mystifying to Russians. They don't smile just casually, and so from our perspective, it might seem that they're they're sad and their lives are difficult, but there's also a capacity for joy there, that I think the two are connected. I think joy and grief are not as far apart as we might think. As you were uh, crafting this book, one of the things I think that you do very well is to um, transport us entirely out of our world and into this one. And the way you do this is with uh, some of the best prose I've read in a long time. It's really, wow, thank you. it's well, uh, 
for a book that's uh, just tops 200 pages, it has a feel of a book that might try, might be 800 pages. We get, and it's not, but yet it's not difficult to read. It just feels very transparent. So I'd like you to talk about uh, the kind of the glittering prose that reflects this glittering landscape. I, what I began as a short story writer, and. The way I love write, I like writing in miniature. I think it's almost the same kind of pleasure that you get from building a ship in a bottle. Is like how much can you fit into this small space, and everything that's unnecessary is discarded, and it's almost like it. It's almost like a puzzle, fitting it in. And and I like as a reader, I don't want to read anything if the sentences aren't wonderful. And so the the writing that I'm drawn to, I will tolerate a lack of, a, you know, it doesn't have to be a page turner for me. And so you tend to write the kinds of books that you like to read. And I just, I write sentence by sentence. It's actually a horrible way to write a novel because the, the from a time management point of view especially, the, the best thing is to write a fast, quick, sloppy draft and then go back and clean it up. I just can't do that, and I've I, I beat myself up about that for years, but I've finally just accepted it's going to take as long as it takes, and I really can't bear having an ugly sentence on the page, which means I create a lot of sentences that get killed in the end, and that they, they were pretty but no longer useful. But that's part of the pleasure in writing for me is is, is writing sentence by sentence, and that's what interests me. When we read this book, that feeling of being transported is kind of echoed in what happens to the characters. And I'm wondering if you as a writer, when you're immersed in this, are you yourself transported? In a way. I, I don't want to, I don't, like I said, I don't want to get too woo-woo because frankly, the life of a writer is just not nearly as romantic as one might think. You know, you get up in the morning and you have your breakfast and then you go in your office and and you work. But the, the, the weird thing about the working is a lot of it is sitting there and staring at the ceiling. <laughs> it doesn't look like you're working sometimes. But I'll go into my office and I go in in the morning and I start working. And the next thing I know, my husband is knocking on the door and wondering about when I'm going to start dinner. And you just disappear into this into this world. And who knows? It's 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 fun, actually. I mean, it's not always fun, but but a lot of it's fun. Have you started a new book yet? I have. Uh, I am well into it, and it's a turn for me. I'm doing nonfiction, and I I if you had asked me this a year ago, I would have, whether you wanted to hear about it or not, I would have cornered you at a party and and told you everything about it because I'm so excited about it but I'm trying to develop a little little restraint and not talk about it too much but it's it's a biography and it's not set in Russia but it does span World War II in in uh, Europe this time and in, in especially in Brussels and, and Holland and it's the story of, of three people an artist and, and his two wives and their stories separately are fascinated and fascinating. And then they're in Greenwich Village in the 50s. One of them is still alive. And she's a little annoyed with me for being out on tour with this book because I really should be home writing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's 84 years old and she's got her book party planned. And it's just I'm just getting in the way because I haven't finished the book yet. So she every once in a while she'll say to me, Deborah, you have to finish writing this book before I die. <laughs> 
Well, that sounds wonderful. We'll look forward to that. I've been speaking with Deborah Dean. Her new book is The Mirrored World. Thank you for joining me, Deborah. Oh, this was so much fun, Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.